We advise listeners that this podcast contains strong language, adult themes and content that some people may find triggering. There'll be food and drink and ghosts and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited. Welcome to Fear Feasts. I'm Ali. I'm Vanessa. And we are your hosts. Hi, Ali. Nice to see you again. Hi, Vanessa. I've missed you. How have you been? I've been good, except for my broken toes. How about you? How are things in London? Yeah, cold. Still uh, cold. They're cold here, too. Typical <laughs> <laughs> Londoner talking about the weather. It's still cold. <laughs> it's still cold and it's still raining. Yes, I know. And people are here in the desert are still talking about the weather too. They're like, it's we live in the desert. Why is it so cold? I know. That's that's how I feel. I hate I hate the winter. So yes, it's, it's awful. Really over now. But but what has been keeping me going is the rereading of the book that is going to be the focus of today's episode. Uh you wanna you wanna do the honors? Well, um, I found it so chilling. I think I'm going to have to leave that to you. What you're suggesting all these books? Are you trying to ruin me? This was so. Such... I am. I, I think. I think you. You spent much too much time reading academic books when you were working on your, on your doctorate. So now it's time for you to read fun things. And as case I in point, I loved, right? yeah, I thought I loved horror, but um, this is beyond yeah. horror. This oh, is. I know. So our, the book we are focusing on for today's episode of Fear Feasts is called A Head Full of Ghosts by the amazing, wonderful author Paul Tremblay. And uh, I love this book. I read this book for the first time about three years ago, and it blew my mind, the ending in particular. Um, Ali, this was your first go around with it, correct? This was my first go around. And isn't Paul Tremblay the, he's very much in the limelight now because of yes. the cabin at the end of the woods. Yes. Was the right title. But um, so, yeah. yeah, so the book that Paul Tremblay wrote that has been adapted into a film by M. Night Shyamalan, who we will be also covering later in, on in this podcast, is The Knock at the Cabin is the movie's title. The book that Paul Tremblay wrote was The Cabin at the End of the World. At the end of the world, that was it, not yeah. the woods. It's because they're in the they're in some sort of forest or woods. So yes, correct. It's confusing, correct. but it's yeah, it's on at the cinema here now, so it's getting some yes. good reviews. So yeah, um, I didn't actually know about this author. I I knew through the film, and now you're telling me about him. So yes, um, yeah. the end is shocking, but I think that's something that kind of defines this author. If I if I've understood correctly, yes. Um, Yes, and 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 his his endings tend to have a pretty strong level of ambiguity, which is something else that I like about his writing because I'm not I'm not real big on neatly, you know, neat neat endings where everything's wrapped in a wrapped and tied in a bow, and we have a clear understanding of everything that happened, and that's why I love this book. Did you want to give the synopsis, or would you like me to do it? You go for it. This is one okay. of your favorite. It take is. It is this book. This book is twisted. So if you if you like twisted stories, you will love this one. So the book is told from the viewpoint of Mary. Mary is an adult now. She's basically telling the story of her family to a reporter. Uh, the story and Mary is also a, a writer. She blogs about horror, which sounds familiar to Ali and I, I think. Yep. <laughs> and so basically what happened is Mary is telling the story of what happened with her, her older sister, Marjorie. Uh, apparently when Mary was 12 years old, 
her father had a major religious conversion to Catholicism, became extremely manic in his in his belief. At around the same time, Marjorie started experiencing uh, some really strange personality changes. Long story short, her father decides that she's possessed Marjorie. And if you read the book, that's what's so interesting about it is you see some very bizarre and ambiguous behavior going on. You know, and the, also remember the book is being told from the viewpoint of uh, Mary, who's 12 years old. So there's obviously gaps in the knowledge. She's, the, mm -hmm. I think, quintessential unreliable narrator. But I think what's fascinating about her character, she she understands that about herself. She knows that she's not seeing the full picture. And she also understands that in looking back, the way that she perceived things then and the way she's perceiving things as an adult um, are two very completely different things. So it gets a lot into family dynamics. Uh, the father, he's, you know, I think he's he's really kind of the villain of the piece. Uh, her mother, you just you you feel badly for the mother in the beginning. She on on the surface seems to be kind of I would say passive, and then really as you get into the the exorcism aspect of the book, you start to see the real role her mother played in the overall, you know, how things evolved in the in the family. You start to yeah. see, you know, our Marjorie's behavior. It's it's a book that I think you really need to read again after you've read it for the first time read it again a second time because you're going to go back that second time and you're going to see oh wow i now that makes sense oh i see now i get it so because you know the ending is, yeah the ending is quite surprising yeah the mom you portrayed is she's often drinking wine and she's smoking and she's definitely not like a positive character in the book no uh, no what is bad with the dad but still yeah. some sort of an enabler i would say well, I think both of the parents were highly dysfunctional in their own ways, and I think they loved their children in their own ways. It just, it was such a, a dysfunctional family relationship in itself. And I think that's, you know, what, what I think why I love this book, aside from the fact that it's just, it's classic horror at its very best. It's Paul Tremblay taking on the horror trope of possession and exorcism, and he does it incredibly well. But it also, he's talking about a family dynamic that I could really relate to because I grew up in a family where I had my older sister and then there was me. And we had a much younger sister who also grew up with us. Um, but I had my mom and my stepfather and my mom was a smoker. And it was funny, you know, my, the mom in the book is not like, you know, she's not like a mean person, but she yells, you know, she raises her, her voice to her kids and stuff. And, you know, the, the description of piles of laundry on the dining room table, it just brought back... <laughs> Just brought back a lot of brought back a lot of memories of my own dysfunctional family growing up, um, you know. And we were we were pretty Catholic, not devout like the father, but you know we were Catholic. And so a lot of the uh, the symbolism of when they bring the exorcist in, and the the you know also there's such a huge homage to the book and the movie, <clears throat> The Exorcist, that that the author Paul Tremblay has basically said this was like his his sort of response to the fact that you know there's really very little modern day literature about exorcisms and so it's a really mm -hmm. great book um, and how do you feel about the fact that i mean paul tremblay is a man um, and he's talking about a young girl being possessed and again we have this idea of men talking about women and the possession of their bodies and yeah he seems to do it and it doesn't seem kind of out of place and people have said that's because he has daughters of his own if i'm not mistaken so um, I think there is some sort of him questioning whether 
there is an exorcism that's taking place and um but it's not really about the girl not knowing things it's about our perception of young girls that we think they don't know their own mind but in actual fact you know she's quite able to look things up to retain information to learn a different language all these things are our assumptions so well and it's and as i think we have talked about previously particularly with the exorcist uh is that you know there's so much of it is is an aspect of control you know, this young lady growing up, you know, she's becoming more and more touch with her, with her body, with her physicality. And, and what I love about the book and just the whole ambiguity, the ambiguous nature of it is that you're not, you're, you're, you're left not really sure what really happened. Was she really possessed? Was she, was she crazy? Was she fooling everybody? Was it a combination of things? Because so much of it is explained, but then there's so many other things that really aren't explained. And then, you know, you can also relate to a young, both of us, I'm sure we can, you know, I remember when I was growing up and just, you know, going through all those ho crazy hormonal changes and having just these crazy, you know, thoughts. And, and sometimes, you know, I think that's where that concept of, of, you know, possession and being taken over by something outside of you, which is what a possession essentially is, um, and, and loss, of, loss of control. And then you see the father in particular, his attempts to to control this daughter. But it's, it doesn't just start when she starts exhibiting the quote unquote possessed behavior. You know, you can tell that the father and the oldest daughter have had a have had a difficult relationship for <coughs> quite a long time. Yeah. And um, in many ways, it's as much about Marjorie trying to control her own situation and her own body as it is her father trying to exert control over her as well. Yeah, an and it's a commentary. Of wills. Yeah, and it seems to be some sort of commentary on the gaslighting that women go through because the dad is shown as a strong protector of the family initially and powerful, and the mom instead is the, as you mentioned before, you know, he's drinking and smoking, she's frail, she's weak. So they show this difference. And then um, when Marjorie turned on its head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when Marjorie states facts, they see that as proof as possession of yeah, as possession, but not of her as someone who might be able to know those things and have that possess that information. You know, maybe she's researching and she's memorizing and learning Latin. How could a woman know these things? So it's a commentary on that yeah. a little bit. Absolutely. And and it goes back to what you and I have discussed in, in previous episodes, because there's still this perception that a woman's place is specific to certain certain roles. A woman has to be a mother, she has to be a wife, she has to be the domestic engineer. If you're mm. a girl, you have to be this, you have to be that. You, you know, you you're you're just a girl. You can't you can't possibly have this knowledge that these Catholic priests who have been in the church for many years could have. I mean, how could you possibly do that? Or you can't possibly be smart enough to quote unquote fake uh, fake being possessed, you really have to be possessed. And, and so, you know, Marjorie is a very tragic figure in many ways, because I, I ultimately see this as her trying to find some level of, of freedom, of redemption. And I think even, you know, to bring the food aspect into it, you know, there's several scenes in the book where they're, you know, mm. having family dinners around the table. And, you know, pretty early on, there's that really disgusting scene in the book yeah. and where, you know, the father is is still hectoring Marjorie and Marjorie's like you could tell Marjorie's you know she's on the edge there and they're they're eating spaghetti around the table which is also some interesting foreshadowing for the end if you think about it we'll talk about that in a little bit so they're eating spaghetti and spaghetti is like apparently a big thing in their house the mom's always making spaghetti 
and they're having dinner, you know, which is supposed to be this normal family scenario that every family supposedly has every, you know, every evening. And it is twisted and turned on its head because this is right when Marjorie starts to really exhibit those, those that behavior and those symptoms of being possessed. She's eating her spaghetti and she proceeds to vomit the spaghetti all over. I mean, it's a disgusting scene. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> the longer we watched Marjorie and waited for response, the more the temperature in the room dropped. And I knew that nothing would ever be the same again. She stopped twisting her spaghetti around her fingers. She opened her mouth and vomit slowly oozed out onto her spaghetti plate. That's a Jesus. Mom said, honey, are you okay? She jumped out of her seat and went over to Marjorie, stood behind her and held up her hair. Marjorie didn't react to either parent and she didn't make any sounds. She wasn't retching or convulsing involuntarily like one normally does when throwing up. It just poured out of her as though her mouth was an open faucet. The vomit was as green as spring grass and the masticated pasta looked weirdly dry with the consistency of mashed up dog food. And I, I thought it reminded me a lot of uh, <clears throat> descriptions of young women with um, bulimia behave. And it's, it's, it, bulimia is, is, is the way of them exerting control over their body. They will eat food and they will force themselves to vomit the food back up. And it reminded me a lot of that. I thought it was a really interesting use of, of food and horror because it, it, it ties in so much with an aspect of, of self-control and bodily control that I think as, as, as women, oftentimes we maybe don't feel. There was an element of the supernatural in the way that the vomit was coming out. I, I felt just through um, sometimes the imagery that we see in films uh, where it's like this, nearly like an ectoplasm type uh, material which is just oozing. So uh, Tremblay uses the word oozing and there's no forceful kind of retching. And it actually says there was no retching. She wasn't retching the green vomit. It was green vomit and it was just pouring out of her mouth onto the plate of spaghetti. And spaghetti becomes quite an important symbol of the fact that they are in financial difficulty because they mention at the beginning that this is their third night in a row eating pasta. And not just that, but their dad is in another room and they're all waiting for him to come to the table. They're really hungry. And though the father isn't working because he's out of, um, he, he actually doesn't have a job, he's um, doing something in the other room. And it seems to be that there is some sort of uh, conflict because of this, it's like they're waiting for him to come to the table. He's always late to come to the table. He obviously doesn't want to be with them. They don't want to really be with him. They start eating and there's a big deal made out of this, you know, dinner scene. The Barrett women wordlessly agreed that we weren't waiting for dad and started eating our pasta. Yes, pasta again for the third night in a row. I'd complained when I'd found mom boiling water in the big pea green pot. She told me that we could no longer afford to be picky at dinner. I'd walked out of the kitchen, slumped and groaning about how I'd turn into spaghetti girl if I ate any more of it. I'd wiggled my arms around bonelessly as a brief demonstration of the not so awesome powers of a spaghetti girl. Our small kitchen table didn't seem as small because our table setting was so depressingly spartan. No colander in the middle overflowing with tentacles of extra spaghetti. No glass bowl of red sauce. 
No cutting board with slices, chunks of uh, garlic bread, no side bowls with sparkling green and red salads. Not that I would have eaten a full salad. My little wooden bowl would have held only little wheels of carefully peeled cucumbers and maybe a few baby carrots. What was on the table, four plates of spaghetti. Serving size is modest and four glasses of water. I'd asked for milk, but mom had said, simply drink water and quit belly aching. Lovely. I know, isn't and it though? Even before this, it's, now that we mentioned the possession and everything else, you know, the dad is not behaving normally at this point. Before this happens, he's praying over the food for an uncomfortable amount of time, it said. So, and that kind of reconnects to to, to her having that reaction yes. um, to the maybe the demon inside her reacting to this prolonged prayer. But also it's quite sad because it says that there's no um, colander in the middle, no sliced chunks of garlic bread, there's no milk. So there's no accompaniment to this pasta. It's literally they're just eating the bare minimum because they have no money. Yes. And then this terrible scene follows. Um, yeah. Utilitarian scene, and and I thought that was an interesting, also just the, an interesting use of food in this book as well as this. This food is just such a, it's such a device of of, of their economics, uh, their their economic standing. Like you said, you know, they they go from like the reference of eating spaghetti with, you know, garlic bread and all of these lovely accoutrements that I think all of us think of in our heads when we think about eating a plateful of pasta. It's, it is almost like a little bit of a luxury. And pasta yeah. being pasta being what it is, pasta itself needs something to kind of jazz it up a little bit. So if you have to eat it dry with nothing on it, I mean, yuck. But then there's another scene, and it's in the following chapter. Um, it's a Saturday morning, and Mary has gotten up and is eating Rice Krispies for breakfast. I mean, and this just tells you how how poor they really are. She has to eat her Rice Krispies uh, with a combination of milk. And water because they have so little they have so little yeah. milk and she doesn't have any sugar so i mean that's pretty major when you think about like not being able to have basic staples like milk and sugar i mean those are things that well maybe not nowadays because you know here in the united states <laughs> a dozen eggs is going for about 10 to 12 dollars but can't find yeah. there's, a, there's, there's a bird there's some sort of bird flu at the moment yes and there were actually no eggs on the shelf in the supermarket Oh wow! Today. Supermarkets, nothing. So we're going through a bit of a crisis here in terms of yes. eggs. Yeah, and yeah. of course, here all too. the memes come out. All the memes on on TikTok and Instagram come out, and there's like a chicken with a handbag on the beak saying, "You know, <laughs> now you, you know, you you thought I was nothing, but look at me now because look you can't now. find I the know. eggs." <laughs> <laughs> A box of eggs costs two pound twenty. Exactly right. Um, my favorite one the is the uh, is the meme going around that uh, it said, you know, uh, back when I was young, you know, toilet paper and eggs were so cheap we used to throw them at our enemies, you know, because yes. I don't know if that was ever a thing in in Great Britain. But when when I was a teenager, Halloween yeah, we go around we would go around and we would toilet paper our neighbors' trees. You know, we'd get rolls yeah. of toilet paper and we'd throw them over them. That was always so much fun. Or if somebody pissed us off. Um, in high school, we would take eggs and we would go egg their car. It was, it was great fun. Oh, did you ever get eggs in your letterbox? So annoying. No, 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 no. I did get I did get my car egged when I was in high school once, but it was part of like my my senior year in high school. You know, we, we would that's what we would do if we were seniors. You know, we would harass one another. Now I think to myself, oh my god, we wasted all those perfectly good eggs. I kicked myself. <laughs> I know. <laughs> 
but so you know, like you relate to Mary and, and Mary's family. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, like that sense of really of loss, and yes. it's it's really particularly hard for the children who are also powerless. So mm-hmm. I guess in a way, yeah, Marjorie's reacting and it's kind of regaining some power or making some sort of impact because yes, it's quite difficult for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you mentioned the rice crispy scene, and I think just before that. Um, is it Mary says that uh, everything felt dead, even though I didn't know what death was. And I thought that was quite poetic, you know, because a child shouldn't ever have that sense of death. But quite often children yeah. do in, it, have that kind of um, sense that there's some lack, there's some loss. And how do I how do I make this into something which is um, solid in my eyes? And often that does occur through food. Yes. And, and they say something evil had been living inside her. And I think that's really a bit like food because food sits inside us for a while. And if that food is something that represents, uh, let's say an evil or something negative, then that makes inside our insides evil and negative, yes. uh, metaphorically, obviously, not uh, obviously through the story. So. Um, I mean, it can make us yeah. sick. So it's it's like a, yeah. it's like the, it's like, you know, the, the, the food representation of, of, of the same thing that happens as a result of a of a possession, if we're going to use a possession yes. as the as the example here, um, you know something gets inside of you and and makes you sick, spiritually mm. sick or physically sick. It's it's kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. These have an impact, and even if you yes. can't touch them, they're not tangible. They still have an impact. And sometimes with these these types of stories, that's often shown through food, but it's quite subtle, and we don't really give it that much importance. But it is no. it is quite visible if you start noticing. Yes, um, and also something else which is quite important is that Mary doesn't eat tomato sauce is that right no so she, she doesn't eat tomato sauce with... she only has spaghetti with butter and this and turns she... out to be quite a, an, in, an important plot point right yes like it, especially at yes. the end we had dinner in the kitchen never in the dining room our dining room table as far as I could tell was not for dining, but for stacking in the clean and folded laundry we were supposed to bring upstairs to our room and neatly put away, which we never did. The piles of folded clothes would grow to dizzying, unstable heights and shrink into sad little leaf piles of socks and underwear after we cherry-picked what we wanted to wear. Mom made spaghetti and sighed loudly in the general direction of my father because he was still in the living room, sitting in front of the computer. We all heard the traitorous keyboards, <coughs> keyboard keys clacking away. Dinner was already five minutes ago. Marjorie and I sat with our full steaming plates of pasta, hers topped with red sauce, mine with melted butter. So what happens as the story progresses is that because of the fact that the dad has been out of work and they're so short of money, is the father decides to have a film crew come to the house and basically do a reality TV show about what's going on with Marjorie. And so that's the other second part of the film, of the book rather, is that Mary is also telling the story from, she's telling it from her child's viewpoint, from, from being an adult, but she's remembering it through this lens of having this reality show filmed in her house. So this film crew comes and they take over their house. They're filming all these different things. They, the, the dad and the mom get some money out of it so they go kind of crazy and buy all this this weird food at costco you know packaged peanut butter crackers and box juices and all the things that you know kids kids of that age just you know loved kind of stuff you would find in your in your school lunchbox um 
but it it ha it really has the effect of not just turning the spotlight on the family as a whole, but it, I think that film crew, I think it actually even makes them makes the family act in 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 more extreme ways than maybe they would have normally. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we all know what it's like when we have the lens focused on us. It, our behavior changes, and it it affects things as mundane as them having meals together. You know, again, you know, the most normal blase thing that any family can do is have a, a dinner together. And we've already seen how, it, you know, two previous dinner scenes in this family, you could just see the slow disintegration of that family unit and bringing this, this film crew in has that, you know, it just, it just expedites that process even more. Yeah. And I think the night before the exorcism starts, they have a Chinese me meal. They do. And yeah, and she said, "I after that she could never eat Chinese anymore." <laughs> so. Mom carried a large brown bag of Chinese food. They set the table with paper plates, and we picked what we wanted to eat out of the white cardboard boxes. That said, Grace, it lasted longer than what we had be what had become the usual, and he alternated between near tears and gritted teeth anger. We politely listened and waited for him to finish. Tony and Jen and their cameras buzzed into the room like the flies on the wall they'd become. Marjorie's plate had more color to it than mine, but she didn't eat much. I ate a mound of white rice and chicken fingers with lots of duck sauce. I associate the tangy sweet taste of duck sauce with that night. As an adult, I avoid eating Chinese food. It's funny that I can and have watched all the episodes from our show without ever feeling like I'm reliving the trauma, but duck sauce and white rice will send me over the edge and will instantly bring back all the anxiety and fear of exorcism night. No, and again, like we've talked about before, you know, food in horror oftentimes represents the calm before the storm. And I think, and, very, and, I, and I think that's why, you know, why I think food is such a, a visceral, part of horror because in a, in a case like this book you know you, you're looking back and thinking oh well this is what we had our kind of our last normal supper together before everything went to hell <laughs> almost literally and figuratively yeah. and so that's another interesting key representation of food and horror is it not just only represents normality banality of course but it also can represent something that it can tie in with very strongly with that memory of horror and in this case becomes something that you can never ingest again because it's like it's bringing back that memory much too strongly. It's an interesting and, inverse of that concept. Yeah, that is, that is, it is so, mm -hmm. so interesting. Yeah, yeah. and, and even that, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, similarly to, I was going to say, it just reminded me of The Exorcist when, Reg, is it <laughs> Regan the vegan? Regan, Regan. Regan has uh -huh. um, started to eat a little bit more just before things get going as you say the form. so she has you know all this food and it, and there is a similar description here where marjorie uh comes to the table and apparently she has a staggering amount of spaghetti clumped together like a ball of yarn yes. so this thing about the increasing appetite which is uh, a little bit of an anomaly is a clear symbol a clear sign of uh, something attacking the body yeah. and that the thing doesn't have a measure of what is normal for that person so it goes overboard and it's like you're feeding all these demons inside of you metaphorically and mm -hmm. then in the physical world that manifests through eating more food 
So and then by yeah. and by the same token, eating more food, ingesting more food, and then vomiting it up. Exactly. Then you have more to vomit out because if you don't eat food, you can't make those incredible vomit scenes like in The Exorcist and like here where the <laughs> You're just out all the I, yes. you know, you I need to thought about that, but you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was that was great, yeah. And then another interesting, really scary scene in the in the book that does another tie in with food is what the scene where Mary goes down to the basement to, in theory, you know, she really wants to just make sure that that her dollhouse that Marjorie has been using to kind of mess with her um, is is put away somewhere. She also goes down because yeah. she wants to get a snack. We were talking earlier about her parents finally have some money. So they have gone to Costco and purchased, you know, these cracker packages and box juices. So Mary kind of goes down there on her own. She wants to sneak a little, sneak a little snack. And Marjorie is down there and Marjorie proceeds to act in like the creepiest way. I mean, that's one of the truly creepy scenes to me in the book is, is Marjorie just going off in this, this creepy tangent and then the father comes in and Marjorie just hides away. And it's interesting because that's that's kind of the scene in, in the book where you start to realize that Mary is a bit of an, not, you don't start to realize it then, you know she's an unreliable narrator, but you start to really see much more of, of really what's going on. I mean, and, and you start to think, you know, this is this possession here. I mean, it's not just Marjorie, you know, acting in a certain way, being possessed. I mean, it's almost like this entire family of hers, including her sister Mary, is sort of enabling this this belief mm -hmm. that she's possessed, whether or not she is. I mean, you could argue that, um, and we we might. But it, yeah, the the mom enables her in her own way. The dad obviously enables her, and Mary even enables her in a certain way because I think Mary is so excited about having these film crews in the house, and you know, I think and there's a, also a sense of of her wanting some of that attention as well. She yeah. does things to kind of bring out certain behavior in Mary. And then as she's telling it as an adult, you can see how she's sort of twisted it from when she was a child as well. But it's interesting yeah. that, that, <clears throat> that that food in that moment is such a big part of, of that memory for her as well. Yeah, it's a huge part. And we also have the issue of medication, just like in the exorcist. Could it be encephalitis? Could it yes. be this? Could it be that? You know, what does she need to take in order to stop this? And what what mental health issues does she have? You know, and obviously food influences mental health. So they I wonder if are they implying that the poverty associated to always eating pasta because they are poor is in some way connected to the degeneration of the mental health because but then that would have affected her differently than the sibling. And there are so many things to take into consideration. But the, the I like the book, the way that it kind of shows and it, it showcases that there are a variety of options here and you don't really know where you stand. You don't even know if she really possessed um, or not, you know, what, what is this all about? So you're always guessing and it's just that scary. But there were also some descriptions of things that happened that were really scary. And there's one that isn't food related that I wanted to share with you, uh, Vanessa, because yes. <laughs> and it was it was the part where she is in her room. I'm, if I'm not mistaken. She's in her room and she can hear her sister or something. Well, she can hear something. She can hear something that doesn't have two legs. It has four legs. And you can just imagine Marjorie scuttling about on four legs. It just absolutely terrified me in the dead of night. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe, don't read, maybe don't read this tonight. <laughs> yeah. 
we did. And that's what makes it so scary is because you're not sure. And that's like, like I was saying, like I was saying, this is a book that you really should read more than once with that eye to that, because, you know, but I, I've read this book five or six times at this point, and I mm. still can't make up my mind. Was Marjorie really possessed? Was she mm -mm. messing with everybody? Was it, was it just that everybody was enabling her behavior? I mean, was she mentally ill? I think, was, could it have been a combination of things? That, that's kind of the where I'm leaning to because, um, you know, and what I like about Mary's character, she tries really hard to analyze it from a scientific viewpoint as an adult and try and say, okay, this is what happened. Like the scene toward the end where Mary, after the exorcism, and we'll get into the details of that in a minute, but there's a scene where Mary runs out of the room after they've, after Marjorie has basically escaped from the restraints that they've had her in for the, uh, for the exorcism. Yeah. And she's terrified and she tells Marjorie, I hate you, I hate you. And she runs down the stairs. And of course the camera films are still recording everything. And the, the description in the book of how, and they describe it through how it's presented in the reality TV show, scared the hell out of me, is Mary is looking up the stairs and all of a sudden Marjorie, it, and, it, and it's described as like Marjorie is like hanging in the air, like she's levitating. And then she jumps down, scared the yeah. hell out of me when I read that section. Oh my God, it creeped me out. Oh, it sounds, me out. Yeah, no, even as you say, you're saying it again, it sounds again terrifying. And it's kind of reminds you of the Enfield haunting and those other pictures that you see of girls levitating. Yes. Are they levitating? Are they jumping? You know, there's always a, an element of doubt. Yeah. But, um, but definitely. Yeah. Why this book is so great is because you are left you're not left with any any real answers. Um, yeah. Although I have to say that to me, that really the most terrifying part of it was not so much Marjorie's behavior, although that was scary. The most mm -hmm. scary thing to me was toward the end when the priests are performing the exorcism on Marjorie and they have her in restraints and they won't let her go. Even when she starts saying, hey, look, I can't deal with this. I, you know, I'm just pretending. I don't know if I was pretending. She doesn't know if she was really possessed or not. And that ambig ambiguity, but that was so frightening to me. Like, yeah. and it really, what I liked about it is it really kind of twisted this, I think, whole concept that we have in our minds about exorcisms in general. Like, I think we all think of the movie, The Exorcist, we think about exorcisms, and we think about, oh, this, this child was possessed by this evil demon. And so you don't think twice about these priests restraining her. They're, you're like, oh, she should be restrained. She's, she's dangerous. She's crazy. But in this book, it takes that and it turns it. And you're like, oh my God, like this poor girl, like let, she's freezing to death. You just dumped a bunch of holy water on her. You have her in this room where the windows open in the middle of winter. She's freezing to death and you have her restrained. And, and she's telling you like, let me free. Let me go. I'm, I, I didn't mean it. I, you know, just going yeah. through some stuff and they won't let her go. That was the thing that no, because they think it's the, yeah, it's the devil tricking them. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, similarly to The Exorcist as well, where she's saying it's cold in here, can I? And they're like, don't go near her, don't go near her, she's tricking you. So it's that kind of mm -hmm. dynamic. And, but they yeah. never, but in The Exorcist, they don't present it as from the possibility of that she was faking it right. the whole time, which is right. why I, to me it was so awful in this book. It's just these, these priests were so evangelical about it. And, and I think that was part of what was so scary is, you know, The Exorcist was written, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago in a different time before we had as much understanding of science as we and behavioral you know cog cog cognitive issues as we do now and so the fact that these priests were represented in this in this book as still being so dogmatic you know 
it has to be a possession. It has to be a possession. She couldn't, there can't, there can't be anything else wrong with her. She has to be possessed by the devil. And they just completely were not willing to even like consider it. That was the worst part for me. That just that kind of like, just another added layer of, of lack of control that this poor girl had to deal with. And I'm surprised this hasn't been made into a film yet because it, it would lend itself really, really well to it being a film because it has these different parts where there are yeah. different mediums. So there's reality TV, there's a blog, then there's flashbacks. Yeah, I wonder if yep. they're considering doing it. I think it would... It would I it would, would yeah. think, especially now that someone like M. Night, M. Night Shyamalan has adapted one of uh, Paul Tremblay's yeah. books, that uh, but yeah, I think I think the possibility is very strong that 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 could that could happen, and particularly this book because these are pretty timeless themes. Um, you know, mm. the, the concept of possession. I mean, that's always fascinating to watch, and, and of course the reality TV aspect of the, the blogs and and all of that that so ties in with with our modern culture and this culture of we have to we have to everything we do has to be. On social media you know even something as simple as what we eat we always have to take a picture of it and upload it to instagram or you know like you and i we love you know but food food through horror is our focus so you know it, it i think it's a very timely book I, I i i hope someone makes it i hope they do a good job and this uh, is set in uh, new england in massachusetts is do you think there's a significance in that i don't know that much about this aspect i just wondered if you had an idea about that I think that's just where the author is from. Um, okay. the, majority, the majority of his of his books are set there, and I think it's just where he lives. But I mean, there's I mean, there probably is a tie-in. You know, Massachusetts it's it's where the um, it's where the the Salem witch trials took place. Um, mm -hmm. There's the Bridgewater Triangle. Have you heard of the Bridgewater Triangle? I have. Okay, is so the Bridgewater Triangle is in yeah. Massachusetts. So it's I think it's that's very possibly uh, one of the major one of the major reasons for it, um, yeah. Okay, and now we're going to slowly progress towards the horrifying ending and oh, Vanessa yes. take us by the hand and lead us straight into this pit of despair where we are confronted with like the most awful ending that I may have ever read in oh, my time. I know, time. right? Believe me, I've read books. I know, I had to take a moment after it. So, the book, the book basically ends with Mary telling what happens on the last day her family is ever together again. Um, Marjorie is in a foot, foot cast after she has jumped from the stairs from the second floor. Uh, the priests have basically forsaken them. Uh, the church has forsaken them. Uh, the dad has slowly started to kind of lose touch with reality. Um, Marjorie is telling Mary, you know, I really think our dad is on the verge of losing it. She starts to show her all of these internet stories about these these fathers who have killed their children after a major, you know, family dispute. And you start to kind of be concerned about it. You, Mary's telling, or Marjorie is telling Mary, you know, we I found this these things down in the basement. Dad has set up this altar with this huge cross. I really think he's you know, I think dad is the one who's possessed. I think dad is the one who's sick. Um, it's right before Christmas. So this just gives it added uh, added pathos. <laughs> so Marjorie starts to tell Mary, you know, what I, what, I, what I think you should do. Dad is gonna do this to us. We need to do this to, we need to take care of ourselves before he does it to us. Marjorie has it in her head that the father is going to poison them. 
and he's purchased this substance. Uh, it's a pretty toxic poison. And Marjorie is telling Mary what to do. You know, you need. We should. We need to. We need to do this to Dad before he kills us. So what happens is Mary is given this poison by Marjorie, and she's told to put it into the tomato sauce. They're having pasta. One more time, another reference to pasta. Uh, I was always, I was surprised that Mary could ever even eat pasta <laughs> after this. Yeah. Yeah. And so what happens is Mary adds the poison to the tomato sauce that oh. Marjorie has already told her, oh, the only one who's going to eat it is dad, basically. So they all come down to dinner. Mary, of course, never eats tomato sauce. So Marjorie, Marjorie already knows this. Um, then Marjorie tells Mary, oh, pass the tomato sauce. And Marjorie, Mar Mary is like, what? No, no, no. So basically what happens is the father, the mother, and Marjorie all eat the poisoned tomato sauce that Mary has inadvertently poisoned because Marjorie has basically told her to. And yeah. all, three, all three of them die. And the only one left is poor Mary. And Mary doesn't know what's going on. She's screaming. She's crying. She's trying to figure out what's going on. She, she goes under the table. That's her safe space. And that is basically where she's found three days later by her aunt. I mean, it's so sad that she's found there with these three dead bodies around her. And that was a rough, that was rough, wasn't it? Oh God. It's like, you know, you know, in the book, throughout the book that her family is gone. They don't give you any details. They don't give you any specifics. You almost think, you almost think oh, well, Marjorie must've died as a result of the exorcism and you know maybe the parents got sick you're never really sure what happens to them you just no, know exactly. something did and marjorie was always the one that in my mind this is what this for me was the most shocking part of that ending is that a marjorie came out of the exorcism fairly okay physically speaking and seemed like she's sort of on her way back to to being normal and you realize at the end no marjorie is as yeah. screwed up well, as she she and the dad are both like totally messed up in the head i mean whether marjorie is a result of, of everything she went through and the extreme trauma of the of the exorcism hatred for her father running revenge on her father because the dad was the architect of that exorcism and he was the one that kept telling the priest and who brought the reality tv crew into their home i mean you can kind of see where marjorie would want some level of revenge but to to yeah. take herself out of it and to to put poor mary as the the agent of, of everybody's destruction was just God. God. What an ending. She used to call her Monkey Mary. Monkey yep. Mary. Mm -hmm. Monkey. Oh. Yeah, I that know. was extremely, extremely sad. Um, yeah. So I think Mary at the end says something like, apparently that last part, so them all dying, didn't happen. But I had... So she's found under the table, sucking on the thumb of the mother, which is a really distressing image. Um, and she doubts that that happened, but she had to, but she then read the police report. So she is doubting her own memory yes. in that sense. And and she says, you know, I trust you with my story to the journalist. So she has different versions of the story mm -hmm. probably in her head. Yeah. Um, you know, this is the real, and that's the real horror. It's a human horror. It's like, she can yeah we see that through how she she talks about herself and whether she can she can rely on her own memory and because of the trauma that she's been through 
so yeah that was that was ghostly in a in a way that I hadn't really expected it to be I know that that twist at the end is just it was rough yeah that that's for sure um yeah and and like you said you know the trauma of of what of what she went through you know both watching her sister go through all of this and then seeing all of these other elements come into it and especially as an adult I'm I mean I can't even imagine what the the, god I mean the entire family was haunted at the end you know that they were haunted by their own the dad was haunted by his own spiritual whatever it was he was going through you know the mom was haunted by her guilt because as one of the as one of the storylines goes in the book you start to question you know did Marjorie make make up this possession and did she do it in co in cahoots with her mom in order to help you know get the money for one thing but also to kind of try and demonstrate that the father is the one who's really messed up here by by continuing to push this fiction of of marjorie needing a needing an exorcism and and that's the that was one of the things that i that i liked is we were talking about the mother's role earlier and how the mother initially comes across as being She's presented as sort of Weak. like, yeah, she smokes, she drinks, she's, you know, she's not this great mother. And in the end, you know, you kind of find out that, you know, she kind of did save the day in terms of, you know, so Marjorie is being strapped to the bed during the exorcism and she, she demands that her mother be allowed to do it. And you don't actually see the mother doing it. And so there's this, there's this big question during mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the exorcism when Marjorie is able to get loose from these restraints and she attacks one of the priests. And, you know, of course, being reality TV, it was presented as, oh, God, the devil set her free, whatever. And and as Mary is analyzing it as an adult, she starts to realize, no, I think my mother was in on it with her and purposely did not restrain her, you know, so she could get loose because she knew it was going to get bad. So it's it's a story with so many layers. It's just. um, Yeah. Yeah. And about the reality and, you know, and, and that bigger metaphor of the reality TV is just something that magnifies whether our own individual realities are reliable and um, all those issues. So, yeah, I personally think Head Full of Ghosts is Paul Tremblay's best book. And uh, Stephen King wrote a quote about the book. He said, a, he- a head full of ghosts scared the living hell out of me and I'm pretty hard to scare. Yes. I mean, you know, Stephen King. If they, if, if you know, the only book that he ever wrote that he scared himself with was Pet Cemetery, and if you've read Pet Cemetery, that is a scary ass book. So if Stephen King was scared by a head full of ghosts. Well, there's something in. I mean, that's a compliment, right? If you could write something that scares the hell out of Stephen King, you know, you know, you're onto something. <laughs> Let me try. <laughs> and in terms of in terms of a recipe for this. Um, I personally have the great desire to make spaghetti. <laughs> but I spaghetti. don't think I'm going to make spaghetti with a tomato sauce. Uh, just a little too uh, evocative from this book here. Um, I thought about maybe spaghetti with pesto sauce in homage of uh, Marjorie's lovely uh, performance at the dinner table. That's a, oh, well, that would be perfect. Mm-hmm. And I, or you no, yeah, I don't fancy making spaghetti with tomato sauce. No, yeah, it's a little bit, a little bit, uh, yeah, too much for there. So, and the, the other thing that's interesting about this book is you can see it's a, it's a clear homage to the Shirley Jackson book "We've Always Lived in the Castle," which I know you and I are going to discuss uh, both the made for it was a film or was it a made for TV movie? 
I think, oh yeah, the Shirley Jackson one. Well, with the there's an actress I really like. Is she the is she the sister of Formiga Vera Vera, Vera Formiga? Oh, Formiga? Thinking of um, Teresa Formiga. Yes, yes, I think she's yeah, she was brilliant. I love her yeah. in that. Yeah. So we will be doing an episode uh, coming up probably in the next couple of months on we have always lived in the castle. So we'll be talking about that. Uh, interesting relationship and i have a lot to say about that book in conjunction with the haunting of hill house which we will be doing very very soon i'm so excited so ellie as always it is so much fun to talk horror and food with you thanks again for introducing me to this book to this author and i can't wait to read some more from him so thanks very much and it was lovely to see you for those of you who know me and who have been following my blog for the past several years, you will know that I am often inspired to cook by some scenes in books that people would consider disgusting. And this time was no different. I decided to mix spaghetti with green pesto sauce in homage to Marjorie's lovely vomit scene at the dinner table. I really don't think you could get any better than that. So keep an eye out on Facebook and Instagram for my spaghetti al pesto. For this week's episode, I will be making homemade spaghetti with Marjorie's very special and very dangerous tomato sauce. It serves four or two if you have a big appetite for the afterlife. I would also like to thank the handsome, talented, funny, and sometimes moody Giovanni Franceschini for taking the time to record some of the book passages we used in this episode. Giovanni is also a very talented cook and a published writer. You can find more about him cookingwithtono.com. We'll also put a link to his website in the show notes. Thanks again, Giovanni. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Tune in for our next episode coming up in two weeks. And as always, stay spooky. <laughs>